there. My name is Tom Chick, and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for Mission Impossible 4 Ghost Protocol. Tom's coming in I guns am hot. That's right. I'm coming at you guns hot, and flying on my wings are Christian Mulansky. Uh, I'm the big hairy Russian. <laughs> and on my other wing, Kelly Wand with the Mission Impossible 4 Ghost Protocol tagline. What is it, Kelly Wand? Uh, another term for triple agent. Agent. <laughs> See, they're just doing the normal. Isn't that what a double agent? No, wait. The huh? odd-numbered ones. Ah, they're the ones that suck. You can do it. Yeah, you can cross it off. It's like the opposite of Star Trek movies and Dexter seasons, except for six. Uh, so how does that work? You know what? We'll find out in a moment how that works with Mission Impossible movies. Can I do the Diablo Cody quote? Because there's a joke in the synopsis about it. So, yeah. so Kelly Wan saw a young adult, and he loved it. He said it was one of his favorite things of the year, and that he was touched by Diablo Cody's... Uh, Sort of her take on the dude having a midlife crisis movie. Kelly Wand, I think you cried during Young Adult. Uh, and then I emailed Kelly Wand uh, a, a comment that Diablo Cody made about how difficult it was to be famous. I ma- emailed that to Kelly Wand because I know he feels a kinship with Diablo Cody as a writer. So, Kelly Wand, what is your Diablo Cody reference that you would like to share with the, with the audience? She said, there's probably no experience more alienating than fame other than a terminal illness. Mm where you actually find yourself in a situation that nobody around you can relate to. So take that, cancer patients. <laughs> Fuck you and your cushy beds. We're the 1%. All right. Just remember that because synopsis and call back. So even after that, you loved Young Adult. Oh, so good. All right. So, uh, But we're not talking about Young Adult. Let's get into no. Mission Impossible. Dingus, before we ruin Mission Impossible for anyone listening, because we've seen it and we are going to discuss it in spoiler-specific terms. We're going to get very detailed with the plot, the intricacies of the plot, that sort of thing. Uh, but first, Dingus, why don't you just give us the basics without spoiling anything for what this like Mission Impossible 4 thing is. All right, well, this week we saw Mission colon Impossible-Ghost Protocol, a 2011 American action-adventure thriller spy movie. Mm-hmm about a team of government operatives who have to go rogue to clear their names and save the world. Mm. Uh. <laughs> the movie's directed by Brad Bird and written by Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec. It stars Tom Cruise, Jeremy Renner, Simon Pegg, and Paula Patton. Uh. It is rated PG-13. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sequences of intense action and violence... And I have to say, I'm I'm pretty disappointed in this rating um, reflect, uh, against uh, Mission Impossible 3, which was also PG-13, but for frenetic violence and menace. <laughs> there was not not a lot of menace in Mission Impossible 4, apparently. And if the violence was not frenetic, apparently. Yeah, no, no, it was in, frenetic. But the action was intense. But I, I think I prefer frenetic violence and menace, too. But that's a spoiler. I apologize. Go ahead. There is more of a science to ratings than I originally credited. I apologize for saying I'm glad you came around on that, Kelly Wan. Yeah, Especially it's all about now, the adjectives. That, now that you're a big fan of young adult, we'll be curious to find out what that rating is. Is I'm there is, Kelly Wan, is there any menace in young adult? Uh there's womaness. <laughs> I think there's frenetic sexuality. <laughs> uh I'm uncomfortable with those two words together, Dingus. 
Shame as frenetic sexuality. Menacing sexuality. Yeah. I was warned. Well, you know, never mind. Okay, let's. Uh, Shame-sexuality. <laughs> Where Tom, was he going to go? Where was he going to go? Mission Impossible 4. So there's no 4. Yeah, there, like no. there, are, there is in our minds. No, it's, it's, it, it is literally mission colon impossible dash. Ghost question mark. Proto semicolon. Okay, well, it is, the, it is the fourth Mission Impossible. Uh, it technically hasn't, you know, it has opened, but they're doing, Paramount's doing a weird thing. There's a sort of an IMAX pre-release week uh, where it's only opened on a few hundred, like 300 IMAX screens, 125 normal screens. So very, uh, kind of a, a limited release, uh, but they're wanting to get people to pay that IMAX premium. So in its first week, in its first weekend on IMAX, it made $13 million. Which isn't that great for a Mission Impossible movie, but considering the limited release, that is good. But when you then consider the premium we have to pay to see it on IMAX, is that good? Who knows? We'll find out. Wow. For when it when it goes to its second week and it opens uh, more widely, um, we'll see. So that. who knows is our analysis of those figures? Who knows? You're welcome, Internet. Uh, it is currently <laughs> it's currently at 95 on Rotten Tomatoes, which means right. that 95 uh, percent of the reviews are positive. Uh, on Metacritic, which weighs the average rating of all the reviews together, it's at 75. Uh, so it's the what you can deduce from that. Lots of people like it, but they only kind of like it. Uh, we'll see how we fall on that in, in, in a moment. Uh, uh, there's the, also the Dark Knight trailer beforehand, which Warner Brothers is mad about because it's not playing before Sherlock Holmes. It's playing before Paramount's Mission Impossible movie. On that. Kelly, Kelly Wan, get that out of my face. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, you care? Why don't you do the line, Kelly Wand? You suck. Uh, you know what? I'm going to do. Uh-oh. Kelly Wand, you're fired from being my co-star. I'm going over to Dingus. Dingus, get that out of my face. No, uh, it's not in your face. See? Yeah, that's Dingus. I could Dingus I fired too. Uh, just so you guys know, then uh, Sherlock Holmes, by the way, sixty uh, percent on Rotten Tomatoes. How about that? Uh, out, of, nice- out of what though? Out of 100%, out of uh, 60%. There you go. So actually, Sherlock Holmes does a funny thing. When you look at how Rotten Tomatoes gauges uh, its aggregates, you can look at the general overall critical response. You can then filter it by top critics, you know, people who know what they're talking about. And then you can look at the audience rating. So if you go in order of how discerning the audience is, you can clearly see Sherlock Holmes does this weird kind of like curve, if you were to graph it, where the audience rating for Sherlock Holmes Game of Thrones, Game of Shadows, Sherlock Holmes Game of Shadows, the audience rating for that, 85. Hey, but then you go down to to the general critics response. Rotten Tomatoes, Sherlock Holmes, Game of Shadows, sixty percent. If you go down, if you go down to top critics, forty-six <laughs> percent. So, so depending on how discerning you are, that 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 is sort of an inverse proportion to how discerning you are is how much you will like Sherlock Holmes. Game I know of- Sherlock Holmes preferred the seven percent solution. Right. Very good, Kelly Wand. Thanks, Dingus. <laughs> um, Dingus is my have- co-star. <laughs> Do we have a sense for? Financially, what's going on? Oh, Sherlock Holmes tanked. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, uh, it had a very soft opening. It fell far, but it fell like fifteen million dollars shy of, of what the studio expected. Uh, it fell far below what the first Sherlock Holmes opened at. So, it, it's, it's bad all around for the box office, but uh, I'm delighted to see that that's affecting crappy movies. And you know what? I haven't seen it. Maybe it's good. I had no desire to see it. It just seems so 
creatively exhausted at this point, uh, a Sherlock Holmes sequel. Uh, so I'm kind of glad it's His not guns going, going off. And having having seen that BBC uh, thing with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, there's just so much creative energy there that I can't imagine sitting through a Robert Downey Jr. Jude Law. So the audiences didn't respond to the trailers where he said, get that thing out of my face. It's not in your face. It's Eternal. in my hand. Right. <laughs> Audiences went, you know what? I don't care where it is. Fuck that movie. <laughs> Look at the way Tom just did that line. He just, I, oh, I have wow. had that one in the chamber for so long. He pictured uh, himself that, saying it like Sherlock Holmes does. <laughs> he said it after. I'm so happy that, um, that Tinker Taylor got us to see Sherlock this week instead of, instead of going to see that other Sherlock. Right. Wait, right. what? Oh, right, right, right. Because you didn't, Kelly Wan, but because Benedict Cumberbatch, who we all liked, even those of us who weren't as much into the movie as others, we all liked Benedict Cumberbatch and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and it led directly to me and Dingus watching this BBC Sherlock Holmes. There's only three episodes of it, though? There are only three. There are three more coming next year. Uh, and you know how the BBC does? They know not to uh, drive something into the ground. They just they go just too enough. far the other direction, though. They, they under... They give you just enough to make you want more. And I, I'd rather uh, that than uh, no. Okay, they give you enough to feel gypped. It's like, like Dark Place, only six episodes. Fuck that. There's only three hours of Dark Place in the universe. I don't. I this universe gets a C minus. <laughs> Kelly Wan, while you struggle with your crisis of faith, uh, let's get deeper. Get that faith out of my hand. It's not in your hand. It's in my. Uh, people really want to listen to this. <laughs> uh, let's talk Mission Impossible. Not four, just Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol. Kelly Wand, why don't you spoil it for folks with a? I don't know. What would you call this? A Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol synopsis? How's that? Uh, I don't know why you would think that. It's a Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocopsis. Ah, very nice. Okay, rock and roll. Oh, Jesus. All right, here we go. <laughs> <clears throat> what? Yes? Questions? <laughs> you sound you sound a little reluctant to do this. <laughs> no, it's just long. Kelly Wand, I'm just asking, would you, would you have rather done one for Sherlock Holmes Game of... God, no. No, no, it's good. No, I'll be. I'll feel good in a minute. All it's, right. It's just, uh, you know... Actually, the blockbuster ones are the most fun to write, because they're just so dumb and bombastic. Okay, here we go. Mission Impossible. Colon. Ghost Protocopsis. Ellipsis. <clears throat> so Sawyer from Lost is a spy in Budapest with brown hair named Agent Henway, and he steals a briefcase of MacGuffins from the briefcase factory in Glasnost. And he's about to get on the train to Perestroika, but his HUD calls out a warning. The ten guys in suits circling him and pointing at him and drawing guns also have red squares around their heads instead of green ones, so he knows they're enemies. And he's all, looks like somebody's crashing the party, Houston, I'm not alone. NHQ's all, uh, you're in a train station and we're in Washington? So he tricks them by running and jumping on stuff and shutting doors behind him. And he wins! But a blonde chick counter-tricks him by coming towards him frontally with a red square around her face and shooting him and stealing his briefcase. <laughs> Meanwhile, beloved spy-ontologist Tom Cruise is in a Russian prison <laughs> pretending he's Steve McQueen and that this notch of shape <laughs> the walls of baseball. But Simon Pegg hacks the system and starts a prison riot, so all the guards are comically torn apart by the inmates. And Tom Cruise saves a comically accented inmate named Balky, because he has a feeling there will be plot later. And Paula Patton 
and Simon Pegg pick him up in an ambulance, and Simon Pegg's all, hey, I passed my field agent test, even though none of my tech ever works, and all I know about is computers, just like the Ving Rhames character. Making me a field agent's kind of like if they promoted C-3PO to vice admiral, huh, guys? And Paula Patton's all, hey, check out this stuff we recorded using Agent Henway's dead eyeballs. The last thing he saw was his killer, some Russian chick. So they watch it, and Tom Cruise is all, wow, I haven't seen exposition masquerading as tech this sophisticated since Wild Wild West. Who's that Russian dame sexily shooting him in the pancreas? And she's all, uh, her name's something something Evskiev. Contract killer. Likes to get paid in diamonds, because those are way less hassle to launder than money. Uh, not only did she kill Agent Henway, we think she's also responsible for the deaths of Agents Dickfor and Viaduct. <laughs> I was so waiting to... The second I saw that in the movie, I'm like, ah! Let's write synopsis. And Tom Cruise is all, what's a bank account? So they stop off at a payphone, and Tom Cruise dials, U-H-H-I-M-F-H-U-H-G-U-Y-S. And the operator's all, Tom Cruise, your mission, if you choose to accept it, although you've never declined, so ask, is to break into the Kremlin and steal some nuclear launch codes. But don't blow the place up. We're still kind of doing damage control, as it were, in the aftermath of that prison riot you caused six minutes ago. This phone will self-destruct in five seconds. Please hang up in four. And it blows up, but not immediately. He has to call tech support first. So Tom Cruise puts on a mustache and a sailor cap, and he takes Simon Pegg along with him into the Kremlin, because they need Paula Patton, the senior agent, to man the computer from inside the white van that says IMF on it, while Simon Pegg, the computer guy, comes along on the actual mission for comic relief. And on the way in, Simon Pegg goes, wow, nuclear launch codes, when does this movie take place, 89? Speaking of which, really sorry about your divorce, we all felt really close to, uh, what's her name? Thought you guys would last forever. Heartbreak Kid wasn't her fault, obviously. Anyway, uh, me and Diablo Cody know just what you're going through. And Tom Cruise is all, here we are, not wearing the masks as disguises for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) So they go into the Kremlin and they trick the guard by using the CG hallway simulator that Wile E. Coyote used that's way less hassle than just shooting a dart in the security guard's net. And the mission goes almost possibly, except that the stuff they're there to find is missing, and the Kremlin blows up, and Tom Cruise gets captured, because on his way out, he changed from his Russian general disguise that helped him blend in inconspicuously into a Bruce Springsteen shirt where he sticks out like a sore thumb. And uh, he wakes up in a hospital, handcuffed to a stretcher, even though he's uninjured, and a Russian guy named Smolensk is leaning over him, smoking, and he goes, You caused our 9-11. Now I'm going to torture you privately until we know more facts. And Tom Cruise is all, we're not enemies. It was this crazy general who hacked my channel and stole your codes and somehow has access to my company's masks. He stole the launch code so he can start a nuclear war for some fucking reason. And the Soviet guy's all, what about that prison riot? My brother was one of those guards. And Tom Cruise is all, uh, roll my stretcher over there and talk to somebody while people (laughs) cross between us long enough for me to use a paperclip on these cuffs. But the Russian guy lights a cigarette and goes, hmm, a general whose voice I just played you on a tape recorder, eh? I have zero interest in following up on these outrageous claims. And a nurse grabs away his cigarette and goes, please don't smoke in here. You're a high-ranking official, and this is an American terrorist who caused all this mayhem. Please be courteous to his lungs. Asshole. 
Vidanya. And the Russian guy stares at Tom Cruise, but not hard enough, because Tom Cruise escapes by going out onto a window ledge ten floors up. And the guy looks out the window at him and goes, why didn't you just go out the door? And Tom Cruise is all, because this. And he reveals a belt, and he uses it to rappel down to the street on a phone cable that happens to be there, and that can bear his weight, and that leads to the ground for some reason. And as he slides down, he goes, so long, Schweinhund. Then he smashes into a windshield of a moving car, and he breaks his back, and he gets put in traction at another hospital, but he escapes again a few more times, and eventually lands in a limo with Tom Wilkinson and Jeremy Renner. And he's on traction now. Uh, and Tom Cruise goes, uh, so what happened to the Anthony Hopkins character from the second movie who gave me the impossible mission of banging Fanny Newton's cat burglar character? Is he dead? And Tom Wilkinson goes, uh, maybe I'm him. Who gives a shit? Anyway, this is my third favorite analyst, Jeremy Renner. We demoted him because you let your wife die, even though all your colleagues think it's a divorce, except for me and him, although none of that's even true. And Tom Cruise is like, give me your pen. And Jeremy Renner gives him one, and Tom Cruise draws a stick figure on his palm, and he goes, this guy was carrying a briefcase in the Kremlin right before it blew up, along with hundreds of other dudes, so he must have caused it. Who is he? And Tom Wilkinson goes, oh, yeah, that guy. Something Vedyevskyovich. He's mentally unstable, but apparently smarter than our whole organization and government because we're disbanding and initiating ghost protocol. That means you're on your own. And Tom Cruise is all, without my team? No big. They're just a bunch of fuck-ups anyway. And Tom Wilkinson's all, uh, no, you'll have them, and they can hear us if we are. And he waves to Paula Patton in the webcam that's in the sunroof, but she just scowls hotly. Also, even though it's ghost protocol, you'll still have full access to maps, any intel you need, gloves for, gloves for climbing skyscrapers, <laughs> masks, sports cars, gowns to parties, invitations to parties you're not invited to, prosthetic hands, magnet suits, passports good for Dubai and India, and some magic paper that can be used as a tracking device in a sandstorm. But other than that, we can't help you. Sorry, dude. Ghost protocol. And Tom Cruise is all, wow, I can't believe the even harder difficulty level after impossible is called ghost protocol. Wait, why can't I use other agents if I can still use Simon Pegg and Paula Patton? And also, I don't get the ghost part. And Tom Wilkinson's all, ah, Tom Cruise, you're like a son to me all of a sudden. I have so many things to say. My character has so much potential. And then he's shot dead by random Russians, and the car flips into the water and lands upside down in a canal in Venice. And Jeremy Renner's all, wow, you never get hurt. And some guys shoot at them, but Tom Cruise tricks them by lighting a flare and sticking it out of Tom Wilkinson's body's pants zipper and sending it floating down the canal. <laughs> and a Russian guy in the embankment goes, Hey, look, a dead body holding a dick flare. Empty your weapons repeatedly. <laughs> it did a sound effect. Help the... <clears throat> and they shoot Tom Wilkinson to ribbons. And Tom Cruise and Jeremy Renner escape to the fallback base, a moving train with a retina scanner in the side of its boxcar going 20 miles an hour across town. They eventually jump on board to after smashing into three or four bulkheads and turnstiles. Tom Cruise is grimly all, Damn, if it weren't for Ghost Protocol, that train would have been stationary. I've never felt so alone. And they all give him a hug. So they go to Dubai to trick the Russian chick who killed Sawyer and the crazy general into giving them the diamonds and the launch codes, respectively, at the same time, which involves Tom Cruise using virtual reality gloves to scale the outside of the city's tallest building so he can upload some shit to his fun dipstick. Luckily, no one looks out the windows and sees him, or any of this, but the mask machine breaks because ghost protocol. So Simon Pegg uses a French accent and a rubber hand to steal the diamonds on a T-card. 
even though Simon Pegg's been consistently unreliable and clumsy and unobservant, except when he has three hands, Paula Patton assigns him to cover the Russian assassin while she goes into the bedroom to adjust her neckline. And Simon Pegg does better than expected, taking three full seconds to let the chick acquire the gun, kick his ass. It's so easy, she does it off screen. Meanwhile, Tom Cruise goes after the launch codes on foot in a sandstorm, then jumps into and out of a sports car going 80 miles an hour, so it rams into the car containing the sensitive documents he wants, but luckily no one's hurt, and no one else is on the streets. No one hurt? Except the Russian assassin who killed his best friend, Agent Henway? Fuck that. Tom Cruise is pissed off, and they all meet in a basement. He's mostly mad at Paula Patton for kicking the Russian chick out the window, even though it was kind of in self-defense. He's mad at Jeremy Renner for doing karate kicks during his speech. The thing is... <laughs> So Tom Cruise leaves without being interested in hearing. But he's not mad at Simon Pegg at all for some reason. And Tom Cruise is all, man, fuck you guys except Simon Pegg. From now on, I work alone except for my former prison inmate and all his arms dealer friends. Dickwads. So Jeremy Renner turns out to be a badass agent, which might have been useful knowledge before the Dubai stuff they just pulled off. So since he's great at fighting, they now assign him to float around wearing a magnet suit and not fight anyone. <laughs> After meeting with the arms dealer and Balky on a boat, the guy says he can't help Tom Cruise, then gives him a sports car and a plane and a bunch of other stuff. Tom Cruise goes back to the team and says, Well, guys, I realized I need you after all, because this mission won't be possible for me to complete alone. And there's no I in IMF. Ready? And he holds out an olive branch, twined around his dick, and goes, My friendship, should you choose to accept it, will self-destruct in five seconds. They all hug. Meanwhile, through the magic of movie magic, we leave the brown, smudgy look of Dubai for the brown, smudginess of India, where they have Paula Patton seduce a Maharishi with her choice knobs and bloodlessly agonizing finger crushes while Jeremy Renner floats around some underground tunnels and unplugs cables. This takes longer than they were hoping. The Russian general leaves the party and goes to another building and launches a nuclear missile to Seattle. They track him down in bumper-to-bumper traffic by driving super fast and Paula Pat looking at a screen and saying, make a left up here a couple times. Ten gallons of CG blood later, Tom Cruise tricks the Russian general by driving a car into a pit like in Vanilla Sky, only this time an airbag saves his face and something unknown saves his legs. He opens the briefcase and goes, mission accomplished, a bunch of times and keeps slamming the mission accomplished button inside the briefcase with his fist, which is all that's in the briefcase except for a helpful countdown timer, but his magic words only work on the ninth try because his friends are dicking around as usual. <laughs> the Russian cop finds Tom Cruise lying there with a dead general in a briefcase with launch codes in it goes, Oh, I get it. You wanted me to get here just now, even though you were running 20 minutes late because the missile launched. I guess we're not enemies after all, though you did cause me much brain damage in that fight and killed a bunch of prison guards, and that was my beamer you just crashed. Back to the hospital for you. That's a real nasty-looking scratch on your hind thetan. Ten years later, Tom Cruise gets together with the team and Bing Rames in Seattle to celebrate the end of the franchise. He's recounting the best part of his story to Bing Rames, who says, Wait, you really said mission accomplished that many times? Why would you tell me that part? Or any of this? Isn't that like top secret? And Tom Cruise goes, Yeah, don't worry, I got the check. And Bing Rames pulls a middle finger out of his pocket and goes, I got the tip. Jeremy Renner's all, well, sorry I let your wife die. I've been having nightmares about it for months, doing drugs, considering suicide, plus took a huge pay cut. That makes you feel better. Tom Cruise is all, it does. Actually, though, that's her over there going to that Starbucks. With that <laughs> I faked her death and told everybody it was a divorce. And he waves at her and goes, hi, honey. 
His wife sees him and waves back, but then taps her watch and shrugs and makes a phone <laughs> gesture with her hand and then yawns and goes inside. And Jeremy Renner's all, wow, that's awesome. She's alive. Unlike the thousands of people I could have saved and missions I could have accomplished if I hadn't been kicked down to analyst for a lie or a whole company was in on but me, apparently. And Tom Cruise is all, don't forget the six Serbians I killed to avenge her fake death. Actually, long as we're coming clean, I should say I faked divorcing them, too. Well, five of them. <sighs> Here I am in Ghost Protocol. If I'm inheriting the franchise, you'd think I'd get at least half the screen time of Simon Pegg. And Tom Cruise goes, what about how none of us slept with Paula Patton except possibly Josh Holloway? Jeremy Renner goes, what's a Holloway? <laughs> na, 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 na. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Wan, that was that was long, but that was uh, just that, like that this. was that was well worth it though. <laughs> that was, like, it, you know, that was precisely as long as it needed to be. Hmm. What are you trying to say? <laughs> he's doing a Gandalf thing. So Simon Pegg's the tinker. Jeremy Renner's the tailor because the magnet suit. Paula Patton was the soldier. Tom Cruise was the beggar. Ah, very good. Who was the sailor man? Uh. Tom Wilkinson, because he's in the water with a flare on his dick. <laughs> Very good. Next question. Uh, All right. Poor next... man. Who's poor man? Uh, us, because we paid for IMAX tickets. <laughs> Very good, Kelly Wand. Next question. Uh, Kelly Wand, what did you think of this movie? I think 3D sucks, but IMAX is cool. I'm pro IMAX. Brad Bird's a genius. And I think it's, it's kind of... Dumb and loud, but um, I mean, we've had these movies now for 16 years, so I'm kind of used to them. Uh, 16 years? Mission, yeah, the first Mission Impossible with the Brian De Palma one was 16 years ago? Isn't that 96? I guess so. I guess that's about right. But wow. 16 years, 16 years of, of Impossible. But the only one that I don't like of them is the second one, because that mission didn't seem sufficiently impossible. So, but for you, thumbs up for this one, right? Uh, yeah. All it's, right. Um, it's what it, you know, it's what I thought it would be. All right. I'm putting you down for that. Dingus, are you in the Kelly Wand camp? Uh, why don't you answer first this time, uh, Mr. you guys. Really? Right. No, so I loved it. I loved it. I, I agree. It was, uh, I wouldn't say it was dumb. It was kind of brainless. Um, but it was cheerfully brainless, and it would, there were jokes about things that were brainless about it. In the movie, <laughs> uh, parts of it were smart uh, as far as like the direction went. I, I thought Brad Bird did a fantastic job. Uh, I gets the I, shit. I thought, unlike the second one, it had a great cinematic sensibility to it. The second one, directed by J.J. Abrams, had a, a That's, weird. Uh, no, no, no. The third. Two was John Woo. Three, right, 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 right. The third one, directed by J.J. Abrams, had a weird sort of TV vibe to it, which I just rewatched, and I want to talk about some comparisons there. Uh, it was missing some stuff that I thought made the third one very good. But considering what it had, considering how brainless it was, considering how cinematic it was, uh, I really liked it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. So I'm in the Kelly Wand camp. All right, so Dingus, why would you uh, – I guess you wanted to go last. What do you got for us? Well, what's re weird is that it's written by guys who did Alias. I mean, so it's written by was, TV guys. So is the third one, though. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, uh, it's it, – anyway, just going with what you just said about the, the TV – the TV sensibility of the third versus this one. Which I think is more in the direction, and I'll, I'll talk specifically about that in a minute, but I think that has more to do with J.J. Abrams than the writers. Uh, the third one had a better villain, though. I thought but go, go ahead, Dingus. So. Oh, well, I 
what I love about it is that it's it's so energetic and animated. I mean, I hate to say that because it sounds like a it sounds like sort of a, a cliche to say about Brad Bird's first live action film that it's so animated, but it's it's just got such a, a sense of humor to it, and it's got such this weird goofiness that that kind of is feathered in. And I watched the third one too last night after after watching this, and uh, I just. As much as I like the others, they take themselves so seriously. And this one, you know, even though it does have the Kremlin exploding, um, even when Tom Cruise is running, he looks like he's running like in a cartoon. I mean, there's there's just so much energy and goofiness. It's in wacky. This. There's there's wackiness in this, and I yeah. like that Brad Bird brings that to it. And also the IMAX. Kelly Wan's absolutely right. Uh, there are a couple of IMAX moments in this where I was just like, holy cow, that looks great. It was worth the extra effort because they had to shoot special cameras. They went to Dubai for the. It is there's a I th- I I would disagree with Tom that I I think there's a lot of really dumb stuff in it. But uh, Kelly Wan highlighted most of that in his excellent synopsis. Um, but it, it's would, worth it to see it in a group of people, especially with people you really like, uh, because I think that that's an enjoyable experience. I would draw I would draw a distinction between being dumb and brainless. I, like I, I think a movie uh, that's dumb doesn't really realize what it's doing like a a movie that maybe doesn't understand how stupid it's being but i don't think we're supposed to really care about whether or not you you know about why they happen to have skyscraper climbing gloves in the train car i mean it's just it's it's intentionally brainless and i think that's part of brad bird's energy there is he's not making this a rules-based kind of thing it's not going to matter what they actually have to do in India, they're going to mention, oh, we're going to turn off a satellite, but they're just there to like pull switches and have action sequences. And I think the movie kind of realizes that and and, and doesn't play it any other way. Uh, so I, I'm just dumb has such a negative connotation, and I don't think that's a negative for what this movie is doing. Uh, I think it's intentionally kind of brainless uh, in that regard, in a good way. Okay. I can accept that. I mean, because that that Wiley Coyote moment that Kelly Wan talks about. Right. Because what I was what I'm sitting there thinking is why don't you in, in an earlier movie you just would have put a dart in his neck, but in this movie we're doing an iPad commercial, so you're doing that and 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 but it's played with to it's played up to such an extent. It's not just we're going to show you an iPad and put it there. We're going to keep moving it down the hall, and then we're going to have Simon Pegg pop up in the camera, and right. we're going to keep playing the joke and keep playing the joke, uh, and then it becomes clear that Brad Bird is injecting sense of humor into this, right? And I did, and I actually think in a way that it was kind of smart, uh, you know, the way he did and make it humorous. Uh, so so I, I, I just am reluctant to use the word dumb. Uh, I meant it as a compliment. Okay. Unless, unless it wasn't <laughs> me who said it, in which case I didn't mean it. <laughs> well, maybe in, maybe instead of dumb, I would say blunt uh, for me because there's so many just people smashing their faces into things that yeah. kept going. Oh, I love it. Oh. It's the most bone. Yeah, it was like Temple of Doom, just bone crunching, painful smacks into metal constantly. It was awesome. Love that. Love the sound effects of bones just getting crunched and splintered every five minutes. But that's very much a thank you, Brad. It's a cartoon sensibility, I think. You know that we're just going to smash our hero and and the enemies into multiple steel platforms and cars and drop them off of things, and they're going to get up and limp a little bit, but be fine. Uh, Dingus, as far as spy movies that begin with something in Budapest, where would you rank this? Yeah, of the last two weeks that we've seen. <laughs> well, well, oh, jeez. I felt so guilty. I, I felt so guilty liking this because it is so 
so much the opposite of that movie. They can both, I, yeah, I yeah, felt so terrible sitting there that I, I wanted to, I, I kind of started to feel like, you can't like this. After, <laughs> after not liking that, how, how dare you? It's an affront to writing and directing and filmmaking to like this movie. I felt bad. What? I really actually felt bad. And if I hadn't been sitting there next to, uh, to Kelly and hearing him, uh, you know, make the noises he makes, I probably wouldn't have liked it as much because I, I did. I really did feel bad. Why? Why do you feel bad? I don't know why you're criticizing your own good taste and enjoying just different flavors. <laughs> well, my good taste was not in effect last week, and that's why I, uh, I felt oh. like, how can you possibly like this bombastic, blunt force trauma, uh, you know, this cartoon that you're watching, and not understand and appreciate that that uh, languid and uh, and studied and thoughtful thing that happened last week? I felt bad. Hmm. Well, good. Then I've mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Kelly, Wand, I have a question for again. You. Yes. That, <laughs> I have a question for you, Kelly. On why does Sawyer go to Budapest to get a file from a dude who he's going to stick in the neck with a sleeping drug using his class ring? By the way, Dingus wears oh, a class, yeah, class ring. Dingus wears a class ring, and now I'm wondering if he has a poison needle in there. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, so why would Sawyer do that, Kelly Wand, and also happen to bring along uh, an inflatable mattress? Well, yeah, that thing. I thought he was just being a stuntman for that part. Or they just forgot to take the stuntman part out of the movie. He totally goes to that. I mean, that, that, Isn't that, that kind of conspicuous, having a mattress outside the room? Like, wouldn't the guys go, hey, wait a minute. Well, no, he drops it. Like, it doesn't it fall below him, or doesn't it, like, set off as soon as he lands? It's part of his gear, isn't it? Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, that. but he, he throws it like it's a like it's the size <laughs> of a Tylenol capsule. Right, right. It's like a hockey puck kind of thing that he happened to carry along thinking he might have to escape from. Well, that's before it goes protocols and his shit, and they have uh, life rafts. Well, and also, what? Uh, I, why does stuff keep breaking? Is that, a, is that something that I've missed from previous uh, Impossible Missions? Because it seemed like a lot of their equipment was really flaky this time around. And it was Simon Pegg stuff nine times out of ten. No, I think that's part of the, the goofiness that comes into play. Yeah. Uh, all right, you know what? I'm asking questions that a brainless movie might answer. No, but I'm curious. Are we supposed brain- to go, boy, he were Okay, sorry. I'm asking questions that a brainful movie might expect to be answered. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that that's really – like, I don't think you're supposed to wonder why the Soviet general disguised himself as his – has his own henchman. <laughs> I think saw in legacy. <laughs> I don't understand what was going on there, and I don't. I don't think it really matters. Uh, just, but are we supposed to well, think IMF stupid? Like uh, none of their shit works. Tom Cruise is the only thing holding it together. I would put that down as comic relief. I think you're not supposed to think about it, Kelly Wand. It's everything though. It's every single time something goes wrong, but they still Tom Cruise well, their victory. Well, Tom, how do you feel about um, how do you feel about the bad guy in this? As opposed yeah, so, to other bad guys, especially the uh, Mission Impossible 3 bad guy. Right. Well, Kelly Wan, you started to mention that, and I fully agree. I mean, I think something missing, and I'm not fond of the script for this, by the way. Like, I, I, I put at the feet of Brad Bird a lot of why I like this, his, his sort of sense of energy, how, awesome. how cinematic he makes it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, there's really no counterpart to that in Mission Impossible 3, which J.J. Abrams shoots with really tight shots. There's a lot of shaky handheld camera stuff. Because um, I watched it last night as well, uh, Dingus. So I, I revisited Mission Impossible 3. Uh, there's a lot of quick editing in lieu of choreography. You can even hear, by the way, the, the soundtrack by Michael 
Giacchino? I don't know how you say that guy's last name. But if you watch Mission Impossible 3, you can basically, for all intents and purposes, hear the same music from Lost. <laughs> uh, it's, it's It's incredible. What do you uh, mean? Which is music? In Mission Impossible 3, you hear some of the same musical touches that Michael Giacchino uses in Lost, whether it's the soft piano stuff or whether it's even these kind of I, – I, just watch it again. It's funny. It's ridiculous, Kelly Wong. Uh, uh, so I think there's a there's a strong TV sensibility in the third one in the way J.J. Abrams shoots it that is not in this one, where Brad Bird really does use a big, huge palette. He takes advantage of the IMAX. There's a lot of fantastic – larger visual tricks like just the overhead tracking shot of tom cruise running in dubai with the dust storm coming up behind him just great great touches like that that were nowhere in evidence in the third movie but what the third movie has i feel is a much better plot and part of that is the the villain you know what what by putting a face on on an opponent you know, we, the the guy in, in Mission Impossible Four was he was just not. I mean, he was just a MacGuffin. I mean, he was, right. he was he was another switch they had to pull, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he seems like a, a bad celebrity chef. I mean, he really does. <laughs> have... Uh, and the, and I also find it's always a little ridiculous when you have to when you get to the big old punch off at the ending. And Tom Cruise, why is he having any problem fighting this? this I know sixty-year-old, yeah, the sixty-year-old politician, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's always ridiculous to me. And I love how they address that in the third movie. By the way, the third movie just has so much smart stuff in the script that I wish Brad Bird had been given to play with more, because you look at what Brad Bird can do with things like Iron Giant and Incredibles, uh, and even Ratatouille, even though I wasn't that crazy about that. You just look at how he can take advantage of a, of a solid script. Uh, if he had been given the material they had to work with, the human element in Mission Impossible 3, this would have been so much better, and I missed some of that. I really missed... You know, hating Philip Seymour Hoffman and what he Man. added to the third movie. And I missed the connection, uh, as convenient and TV esque as it was, between Michelle Monaghan and Tom Cruise in the second movie. Uh, I missed the sense of, you know, that, that whole betrayal element in the third movie. The third movie is actually really smart with this idea of, of patriotism and the villain being a neoconservative. And, uh, it, it has this kind of trenchant, post 9-11 message in a way or not message but undertones there's some of that there and and that line that larry fishburne has about you know i cannot he has some really chilling line where they've they've captured tom cruise and uh he's betrayed the agency and larry fishburne says something to him about uh i will i will bleed to make sure that the the flag runs red or something like that that the stripes don't run on the flag it's this ridiculously jingoistic line and it's delivered by what turns out to be a good guy uh so there's really clever stuff in the third one that i missed in in the fourth one and as you were asking dingus the villain being one of those many things it was also too philip seymour hoffman wasn't he was just a kind of a schlubby looking guy physically so the idea that he was like tom cruise's superior in intellect made it like a like a cool challenge and yeah. it's like he's up against an insane 50-year-old diplomat, but he's only gimped by the fact that he's been hurt repeatedly throughout the movie, which I did kind of like in this one. Like, Tom Cruise gets bruised a lot. You don't really see it, but he keeps smashing into shit. Like, you get the sense by the end of the movie, he's just like, oh, fuck, it's one Russian guy left to kill. That, that's, yeah, that was a little weird, though. I wasn't sure. When, when he first uh, 
does the zip line down off of the hospital yeah. wall and lands, and he gives the look to the policeman looking at the window. He has this look on his face like, I can't believe I made that. Right. <laughs> Which I thought was a little odd. I mean, you know, he's Ethan Hunt. After three movies of doing that kind of thing, he's surprised that it actually worked. What? Uh, yeah. But he's also really world-weary in this, too, and he seems, like, irritated a lot of the time. You know, I you're right. Like you did, I, cause I didn't like that. He just seems so grim and serious in a way that he wasn't. You know, the third movie, there's he, and he looks a lot younger. It's kind of weird. In the third movie, there's still, I look at that, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the guy from Top Gun. Maybe it's his hair. I don't know. Uh, but he did. He, uh, world-weary is a good way to put it, Kelly Wand. Uh, uh, that seemed realistic. Grim. Yeah. And he seemed just annoyed. Well, he also gets bitched a lot in, in the fourth one in fun way. Like, that's what makes it. Because I was kind of worried because the trailer plays up a lot of Jeremy Renner stuff, and it also gives away the fact that he's. Oh, I know. So annoying. But, gives uh, away what? I, what does it give away? The scene where Jeremy Renner grabs the gun is in the trailer. Oh. I know. See, where you what is realize, he? Yeah, where you realize that he's a super badass trained fighter and he can do right. fancy stuff. That's that's a that's a key plot point that they that they make clear in the trailer. Which I although even with that, even if they hadn't, I would have gone. Oh, Jeremy Renner's in it. Obviously, he's either the villain or he's a secret badass. And but that's such a great up. moment. It's such a great like uh, a born identity, but but a, but a, almost with a sense of humor moment. I I really liked that moment, and I would hate for that to be spoiled. Well, and now he's Jason Bourne's successor too, so he's in every movie. Oh, that's right. And he's and he's uh, Hawkeye. Hawkeye, Hawk, no. right? Yeah, yeah, Hawkeye. Oh, okay. okay. See, see, I know my comic books. What a comic book nerd you are! <laughs> uh, so, Dingus, how did you feel though about about the the human element compared to Mission Impossible Three? You you watched it last night. Uh, as a follow up, did any of the stuff they talked about did it bother you? Or you? Uh, how, how did you feel about how it was changed this time around? The human element is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, like the Jeremy Renner stuff, not having a a, a good villain, uh, not having the romance. I don't think anybody hooks up with anyone in this one. No. Well, Paula uh, you know, Patton. Uh, you know, Paula Patton doesn't. For me, she seemed thoroughly generic. She and is no Maggie Q. What? No way! You <laughs> guys are not, crazy. She's not even a Carrie Russell. You know, I gotta say, Ooh. Uh, I, 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 I cool I, dude. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, even Carrie Russell is a corpse with a weird eye. Um, I, I just thought that just, there was a cool thing that they did, and it is very TV. All that party stuff at the beginning of Mission Impossible 3 is very alias. Real, real quick, it's not only is it very alias, I was so surprised to watch it to see Jesse from Breaking Bad in Mission Impossible 3. Uh, <laughs> he just sort of comes by and goes, hey, bro. Yeah, <laughs> it's like TV land. <laughs> Wait, he's in that? Yep, he plays uh, Tom Cruise's brother-in-law. Uh, Rick, I think is his name. <laughs> but it's and, so uh, funny. It's like, hey, it's Jesse. <laughs> and her friends that are that, uh, that he's lip-reading are all like various TV actresses, too. I mean, it's kind of a who's who of TV actresses. Oh, so that, that whole uh, party contrasted against the party that's in Mumbai, I think, the, the Indian party. Mm. Uh, you're right, Tom, that, that Brad Bird understands how to really make it cinematic as opposed to TV. Um, but, uh, but Paula Patton didn't do anything for me. She, she eventually sort of has this weird sort of seducing thing where she's beating the guy up, which is okay, I guess. And I don't, I didn't really get her at all. But, um, can I so. just say, Dingus, there's a moment where, uh, 
she like you, they set up that she might be a sort of a rogue elephant when it comes down to the chick assassin because the chick assassin killed her boyfriend Sawyer. Uh-huh. Uh, so I like that they set that up. And when the chick assassin is getting away, there's a brief moment where Paula Patton kicks off her shoes. Uh, and goes out, and I loved that moment because I was like, "Oh, now we're gonna get some cool like action sure. hero chick stuff." And that, none of that came through, which is part of why I say she's no Maggie Q. You know, Maggie Q began as a, as a stunt woman doing Hong Kong cinema. Uh, she's just the physicality that woman has, and Maggie Q does the same kind of thing in Mission Impossible Three, where she has to show up at the party at the Vatican in the sports car right. and the sexy dress, and and she's not like as sort of curvy, and she doesn't look like a model in the same way that Paula Patton does. But there's just so much physicality to Maggie Q in action movies. I, I loved that. And so I was hoping we were going to get a little bit of that with Paula Patton when she kicked off her shoes. And I just, I'm with you, Dingus. She just did nothing for me. Although I have to say, you know, you think Tom Cruise got beat up in that movie. I came out of the theater. I think my ribs were bruised from the guy sitting next to me who kept nudging me every time mm-hmm. Paula Patton was on screen. And that guy's name is Kelly Wand. Wait, uh, was that... The guy who put nachos on your coat sleeve. (laughs) (laughs) But I was thoroughly disappointed by not having a villain because that guy, whoever he is. He's the guy from the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo non-American remake movies. He's the villain in that. He's standing there doing like a Doctor Strange love speech, but it's like the low rent version. (laughs) And and then he's dressed up as his henchman. And his henchman is, I I don't know know what to, how to describe that guy, but he's just another dude. There's nobody. None, none of the bad guys have any pop, and yeah. and I just I think that's that that could be death to a movie like this, and 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 it's you know all credit to Brad Bird for rising above that because I really could have hated this movie for that element. Right. How how you get away with that is is pretty impressive, and I think it's partly because they were just constantly focusing on on. This element of teamwork, which which they were saying it so many times that it started to be comical. And I wonder if it's like the first movies were very much this is Ethan Hunt and and I wonder if they're trying to make it. okay, we're going to be Mission Impossible Force or Impossible Mission Force. And we're going to try to make it into a team movie now or something the way Avengers is going. I have no idea. Um, But not having a villain, I think, is a huge problem. But it it makes up for it. it. In comedy. It's and funny. the thing about Mission Impossible 3 that totally shocks me is it does that thing I usually hate of the... I know. You know and <laughs> what does it do, Dingus? Because I hated it, too. I didn't. I thought it was a cheat, but an effective cheat. And as I was watching, I was like, I wonder if Dingus would take issue with this. So explain what your problem is that Mission Impossible 3 does and, and whether or not that's a problem in that movie. Uh, it does the... It does the... We're going to show you the last scene first. And then, but it doesn't give you the. I don't think it gives you the like forty-eight hours earlier uh, of uh, time card. Right. But it does that. It shows you the last, the last, you know, the the uh, the, the final scene or the climactic scene, and then and then it shows you how we got there. Uh, but for some reason, it didn't overly bother me. I think because um, I had forgotten that Michelle Monaghan was in this, and when we watched. <laughs> We see her show up in Seattle and go, hey, hi, got to go. And then to see her again in this at the very beginning, it was kind of this, oh, yeah, she was in this. Okay, that's all right. Yeah. And they they play that scene really well. And actually what I really like about that scene 
And this has nothing to do with uh, the structure, the structural problem that I'm talking about is that the way Tom Cruise plays that scene is really great in Mission Impossible 3, I think. He's just working through every single strategy he can work through to get Philip Seymour Hoffman not to do what Philip Seymour Hoffman wants to do. And I really like the way that scene is played, but I don't, I, I almost never like that. I guess I, I guess it's okay there. I like it because it sets up. It's like you can tell from Philip Seymour Hoffman's voice that he's smarter than Tom Cruise. So it is an impossible mission because he has 10 seconds to outthink someone who's smarter than him, and he's got a bomb in his brain. And they also use the mask. You know, it cheats this idea. Right. I, I mean, it's got this great sort of internal consistency with the story we're about to be told and that whole conceit about impos- Mr. Impossible guys having those fake masks. Uh, I, I think it, yeah, it works. So, Dingus, the reason that I, I don't normally mind that device as much as you do, but I'm especially okay with it if it serves the material well. Even if it's manipulative, I think if it fits in with the material, serves it well. Uh, if you want it kind of cheat to hook the audience early on, I always kind of think that's fair play. So, and I think that was one of the best case examples of that in, in Mission Impossible Three. Um, yeah, it got so, me hooked. It was like a good hook. To yeah, like. yeah. Oh, well, that's the thing is, I was going to put it on last night because I just I realized after Mission Impossible Four, and eh, there's no villain. I want to go back and see a couple of the Philip Seymour Hoffman scenes. And after watching that first scene, I ended up sitting down and watching Mission Impossible Three all the way through again. It's a great hook, and that movie moves fairly well, also. Uh, oh, and that scene, by the way. J.J. Abrams said in a, in a talk at TED that um, the actor who uh, shoots the thing up Tom Cruise's nose was, like, worried about hurting Tom Cruise. And so they finally, the way they do it in the shot, J.J. Abrams is like, all right, let's think like a student filmmaker. And his idea was uh, it's actually Tom Cruise's hand shooting himself in the nose because he would know how not to hurt himself. So it's actually him doing it. So Tom Cruise's hand stood in for Eddie Marzen. Right, it was a fake shimp. Tom Cruise was a fake shimp. I had forgotten that Eddie Marzen was in that. He, I don't think he is, Dingus. Oh. <laughs> but I'll Fair. say it right anyway, because that's my role. Speaking German. Yeah, oh, God, that's right. <laughs> Poor Eddie Marzen. Uh, so, Dingus, how did you feel about, because I think I know how Kelly and I feel. I know how I feel, and I suspect Kelly's with me. How did you feel about that uh, sort of the ending twist about Jeremy Renner's character and all the stuff about his wife and, you know, the fact that it did want to wrap up and have a happy ending? Did any of that bother you? What twist are you talking about? That that uh, that Tom Cruise's wife is still alive. That this whole idea of Jeremy Renner feeling guilty about what he did is all pointless. Not... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, I think that Kelly Wan and I would agree that we felt a little cheated. That they that they add a little dramatic weight, a little gravity there, and then they pull the rug after us out from. Although at the same the time, end, and they're all kind of like, "Haha, just kidding." I was kind of stoked, too, because I was thinking, oh, she's dead. We went to all that hassle in the third movie of saving her, and I felt kind of like Ripley and Alien Cubed, like, right. oh, so it was all for nothing. Aliens may as well have ended five minutes later and bummed us out. So, so Dingus, were you okay with that, or did, did any of that bother you? No, I hated all of that, mainly because I don't think it has anything to do with what you guys are talking about. What I hate is that it's clear that they've got a mission to do and the mission is time sensitive. And instead they're sitting around waving at the wife and drinking beers. Um, <laughs> I, I just think that whole ending where, you know, I'm going to tell you the last few years of your life have been a lie and you're going to be like, Oh, well, that's a relief. I'll take your phone now. I mean, this phone, it, it, I was just so distracted by iPhones that by that point I just, uh, you know, him watching his wife walk around was just goofy. 
And even having Ving Rhames back. I'm like, what, what you're going to bring Ving yeah. Rhames back and not, nothing. and not Maggie Q? Really? Seriously? That's what I get. <laughs> it's <laughs> all teamwork, but never the same team. Uh, Dingus, how did you feel about Simon Pegg? You know, I, I was wondering how you felt about him, because I know you, you hated him on the last J.J. Abrams joint we watched. Um, and I wonder if if that even worked for you, because I really, really liked him. I mean, I... I I could hear, hear you laughing, but I know you're an easy laugh. Right. Um, and but part of what I really loved about this movie was the uh, the injection of humor into it, and Simon Pegg is a huge part of that. And I think it really worked. I mean, there was a couple of jokes that I felt like they overdid, but most of it I really liked. I I am all for Simon Pegg in supporting roles, uh, and considering how how grave Tom Cruise was and how flat, well, I should say, uh, dull uh, Paula Patton was, and <laughs> well how, and, how <laughs> and of course they were doing a weird cipher thing with Jeremy Renner, or whatever. So I there was a perfect sort of vacuum for Simon Pegg to fill, and I, I thought he did well. Uh, it's not like where. He's going to be the entirety of it. It's not like like Paul, that horrible thing he did last year. Or was it earlier this year? At any rate, it's not like oh, where he's trying Paul. to anchor. Oh, God, I did. You should see it, Kelly Wan. You should see Paul. Uh, so I did. I quite like Simon Pegg. I do like him. as He's, he's a funny guy. He's got good timing. Uh, you know, it Plus, did, he's British. And it's a well, why did you hate him so much in the Star Trek movie? Because he had a, side, a little sidekick pet creature, I think. I didn't hate Did I hate him? In the Tom Star-Trek? prefers him you as the sidekick pet. <laughs> <laughs> Tom did, did I hate him in the Star Trek movie? I guess yeah, I, you really, you really I, did. I, I, so, I did. So whenever I see him, I wonder how's Tom going to feel about this. And given that he was given such a bigger role here, I was constantly wondering how you felt about that, even if you were laughing. Well, and I had even forgotten he was in three. <laughs> like I was, I, yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was a revelation. Oh yeah, Michelle Monaghan was in this, and oh yeah, look, there's uh, Simon Pegg. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is funny to sort of chart the um, the career tra- trajectory of somebody and then see where they're going to wind up. Because, you know, if, if he weren't a bigger name now, he's not going to get this role. Right. Regardless of what he does in three. And so it's kind of cool to see, oh, this is where Simon Pegg is gone. Now he gets this size role in four. And really, I think, helps the film. Right. Uh, he doesn't have sex with Paula Patton. How come no one's interested in having sex with Paula Patton? Because she's uh, her boyfriend just got shot by a Russian. That's the best time. time. That's the best time. It's when you console the third place winner of the pageant. <laughs> uh, Kelly Wan, you did seem to enjoy that uh, that Mumbai party scene. Fuck yeah, I enjoy all Mumbai party scenes. <laughs> Devil's double. They've totally made the movie. Uh, I had to excuse myself and use the restroom uh, during the movie. And when I came back, I leaned over to Kelly Wan. I said, tell me, what what did I miss? Uh, and Kelly Wan was started making up some random stuff about, oh, they're going to use magnets and Jeremy Renner's going to jump through it's a fan. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, whatever, shut up. And, <laughs> and, then, and then all that stuff happened. <laughs> I, I feel bad for ever doubting you, Kelly Wand. If you'd, if you'd gone to take a leak and hook right before the crocodile fell on Dustin Hoffman, and then that's how he dies, and then you come back and I tell you that's what happened, would you I, believe No, I would not have believed you. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, now, Tom, you, you spoke somewhat disparagingly of what uh, Michael Giacchino did with the music in 3. How did you feel about 4? Was there music in this? It's just the Mission Impossible theme. <laughs> but it's it's so many versions of it. I mean, there's even an Indian version in the <laughs> as the women are dancing. <laughs> I did not. Did, did it make that. any Did it make any impact on you at all? Uh, it did. I would have to say it did not. 
you, do you guys care for the music? Did it stand out for you at all? It made me want to watch the movie with Gary Oldman's character in Tinker Tailor and like look over at him while the music was on and see if he was tapping Sam. His ears would be bleeding. Oh, or would they be quick? So Dingus, you uh, you take issue then with the music? No, no, I really I really like it. I mean, oh. um, um you know, Michael G what did he win his Academy Award for? Was it Up? Um, oh God, he did do Up. Yeah, that's right. He's yeah, done so a- much stuff. I mean, he he did I think he did a lot of Alias Two maybe, and he That's did. That's the Oscar. Um, he's done. He's done a lot of stuff. He did Star Trek as well, and I mean, I like a lot of the stuff he does, and I I did like this. It's it. I don't know if it was a function of the theater we were in. I don't know if IMAX almost mean all also means loud because this was a very loud movie. Yeah, yeah. It's um, a, it's an acronym for loud. <laughs> but I like what he did with the score. I mean, I I did like that, and you know, I did like singing in IMAX. Yeah, I agree. It's the best IMAX film you'll see this year. So I have to say, I, I guess I didn't catch what made the IMAX stuff so good. I mean, I, no, it, it looks great, and I love the sort of bigness of it, but I guess a lot of that was because it was IMAX. Ah, building and Sandstorm. And that was really Tom Cruise. He refused to let a stunt double do the CG. By the way, I don't believe any of that for a second. Well, it's still fun. <laughs> No, never, climbed never, in- ever believe it. When, whenever an actor says, I did the stunt work, it. always a lie. Except for the acting. Uh, but in Mission Impossible <laughs> 2, he does that rock climb thing at the beginning where he's in. Right. But you that could, was really him. Right, but I guarantee you, Dollars to Donuts, Kelly Wan, they had so many wires hanging off of him. That's I mean, to, fine. To ensure a guy like Tom Cruise, he's not doing his own stunts, and he's not doing any... You know what? He's not doing anything stunt-worthy, I would say. they might. He might be willing to be strung up by... You know, ten super strong cables that they later have to digitize out. But that guy's not doing anything that I would consider stunt work. No, even with ten cables, you're still up 135 floors on the outside, and it's a real CG sandstorm coming at you. Would you do that, Kelly Wand? <laughs> well, I wouldn't do it with there was like six minutes to get back in, and his cable was too short. You could jump into the thing, but you're getting you're jumping into Paula Patton's boobs. <laughs> Take that, Sawyer's thing. So, how many airbags did they have in this movie, then? Well, she had two fun bags. <laughs> Kelly, one that's terrible. What? <laughs> She's a mom. It's okay. One, two, three. Not only you and me. One, two, three. Did we have another uh, Kelly one? What is the best Paula Patton movie? Mirrors. Oh, wait, Sweeping the Broom, or whatever it's called. Oh, no, wait, Swing Boat. Actually, this one is. <laughs> All I remember from Mirrors is Amy Smart pulling her, her jaw down. Uh, <laughs> I'd kind of forgotten Paula Patton was in Mirrors. Yeah, she's her top's wet for the whole second half of the movie, and she's running around uh, wet-topped. Wait, I thought that was Dark Water. No, that's Connolly. Minus the rack. Kelly One, could you work out a chart for me to, to keep all that straight? That chart out of my face. What's in my third hand, Simon Pegg's out of my face. <laughs> uh, I'll bet you can't wait until we see Sherlock Holmes' Game of Shadows, Kelly Wand. Is it a sequel to Blair Witch, Book of Shadows? Ah, very good. Aha. Uh-huh. Take uh, that, titles. What do you think of a 3x3 three three right now, Kelly Wand? Let's do this. You ready? Yours? Mm, let's, let's do, <laughs> let's go ahead to yours. I don't think I like mine because Kelly won last week. You're like, oh, I know what you're gonna pick. 
and I had no idea what you were talking about. And then over the really? course of the week, I think both Dingus and I figured out, oh, that's what he was talking about. So, <laughs> Dingus, you said there's another one you're pretty sure we're all going to bring up, but I don't. I only have one sure thing here, and I I don't like this three by three anymore. All right, so here's what this is. I actually I ditched both of my sure things, but I'm I have in envelopes the two I uh, runner up for what I think Kelly Wan's going. Why would you ditch? Well, you know, we'll get to that. You're not supposed to. Why would you ditch your sure things? So we'll get to save that thought. Uh, let me tell you guys first what this three by three is. So we saw a movie last week, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, in which a character recounts something that happened a long time ago. And we don't see it, of course. It's just the character talking about it. There's no flashback sequence. And I preferred it that way. I thought it was a fantastic touch. And so I want to do a three by three of other examples where an important moment is told, not shown. Because one of the rules, I think, of screenwriting, or maybe it's book reports or something, I don't know. There's some important rule somewhere, show, don't tell. So these are examples of tell, don't show. Hmm. Uh, Kelly Wan, you are introducing next week's 3x3, so that means you get to go first. What is your number three choice of telling, not showing? Uh, 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 oh. Right, we're doing this right now. I guess I'll go for number. So this is the third best. I can't just do the one that I kind of want to get out of the way because it's just going to be the same one. Because I have to do that one last. Cause well, you want to save? Yeah, yeah. This is a numerical order, descending numerical order from your favorite to your least favorite favorite. This one's kind of boring, so we'll just gloss past it. That's the verb I'm going to stick with. Gloss. Uh, close encounters, air traffic controllers. Yay! Does that count? Dingus, how do you feel about that? Um, I. All right. If it doesn't. What count, are they? What are they telling instead of showing? <laughs> yeah. That you don't see a UFO go by a plane. You just watch a guy watch a screen talking to a guy who's watching a UFO go by the plane that he's on. And so. you know what? I kind of like that because I'm so partial to that scene. I love that scene, and it is an example. You know, for whatever reason, Spielberg didn't just want to shoot airline pilots looking out the windows seeing UFOs, so he has people. Talking about it, uh, so you know yeah, what? So, I, I yeah. think I, I would accept that one, Kelly Wan. Dingus, do you have some reservations? I think it. I think it isn't in the spirit of what you were going for, but I guess it it, it is in the law. Kelly Wan, good news, you're cleared. They would re if it was made today by McGee or Brett Ratner, you'd see the UFO go by or Michael Bay. Picture that in a Michael Bay movie, air traffic controllers. Well, now Kelly Wan, there's the part in the last Transformers movie. Uh huh. Where uh, Optimus primary uh, uh-huh. comes. I'm listening. Continue. Yes. When he, uh, attacks, What's he do? He yes. attacks Dubai with his uh-huh. Optum hmm. beam. And, oh. And uh, Shia LaBeouf just had a, has a monologue about it where they don't show it. Wait, he just goes, Shia LaBeouf goes, Man, the Opticon beam, it's destroyed the pyramids. He says, right. Uh, right, 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 right. You don't exactly. see the pyramids. Yeah, just, Michael Bay has the restraint to not show that the scene. papers. Huh. All right, well, I'll take it back. Forget Close Encounters. Put Transformers. <laughs> no, I think I do like that one, Kelly Wand. Uh, so Dingus is giving you middling approval, and my approval tips it just over the balance, so you have passed. Congratulations. Shia uh, LaBeouf, number three. <laughs> uh, Dingus, what is your number three choice for uh, a scene that's telling, not showing in a movie? Hold on, I'm still writing down your quote. Michael Bay has restraint. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, I've also got a quote from my number three. Would you like to hear it? Yes, sweet. Kelly Wand, you should have done a quote from Close Encounters. I'm disappointed. Huh? 
<laughs> the quote would have been, uh, what is it? Uh, Something United, uh, alien. United, United 513, do you want to make a report? Uh, I wouldn't know what to report. Wait, keep going. Then what? <laughs> and then, and, and scene. What about you? <laughs> no. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. He asked another one. He asked another guy, yeah. I, I wouldn't know what to report either. <laughs> Maybe the one they saw was the one that Barry, the kid, called ice cream. Like, that's why they don't want to report it, because they're like, it was kind of not that great. <laughs> they're going to sound silly explaining yeah. that it'll look like an ice it cream. Wasn't a, yeah, it wasn't the mothership and volcano. It was more like <laughs> ice cream. Uh, all right, so Dingus, give us a quote from yours now that we've done quotes from Close Encounters. Kelly Wan and I have reenacted part of the scene. I want you, Dingus, to reenact a line from your number three choice. George thought he was smart, except he wasn't. Of mice and men. No. <laughs> the only thing I could think of with a George thought he was smart. <laughs> Wait, that's from a mice and men. <laughs> Tell me I can think of with a character, Dave. Oh. Who's saying that? That's my question. <laughs> All right, here you go. I'm going to give you the whole thing. George thought he was smart, except he wasn't. One morning, George rides into camp, and about 20 guys opened up on him. See, old George only had one eye. you got to have two eyes. You want to get Jesse? Uh, is this the fucking Casey Affleck movie? It's on every list. Jesus. <laughs> it hasn't been on a list in a while. It should be on. Uh, I know it's on every list, except my list. So, Dingus, explain, this, yeah. explain the scene, Dingus. All right, this is my one of my favorite scenes. Uh, this is from uh, Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, and it opens uh, – this particular exchange kind of has a double um, tell-not-show moment where uh, um, Bob's brother, uh, played by Sam Rockwell, uh, goads him into telling the people at the dinner table they're sitting there having a meal with Jesse James, who's come in. To their presence and surprise them. Uh, he's, he's telling, uh, Bob, Robert Ford, you know, Robert Ford, and Bob had all these ideas of how he and Jesse were so much alike. And so, uh, Bob tells this whole story about all the things that, that he thought were, were in comparison with him and Jesse James. And there's this great thing of, you don't, I could see a, a director like, of uh, uh, Fincher showing like heights and letters and like little visual little things as Bob tells this story uh, and then he gets to the end of it and Jesse kind of just looks at him and then he leans forward and tells this little story about um, George Shepard I think that's his name, George Shepard and how George Shepard it's 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 a story that, that uh, Bob's story just called to mind that George Shepard was pretending to be his friend too and George thought he was smart except he wasn't, he actually had designs on me and there's this great interplay going on with the characters, but you don't get a flashback to George Shepard, you know, being tough and then 20 guys drawing down on George Shepard and killing him. And it's just two characters talking across a table. That is what a good one. Yep. Dingus, I have a question for you, though. Uh, whatever possessed you to go up on the roof in December? There's a, there's a guy. Wait, wait, wait a minute. There's a cat up there. Tomcat. <laughs> and that's another example of somebody telling a nut joke. And there's a lot, too, of people telling things, and are they embellishing them? You know, how much is legend, how much is true? And that's a lot of what that movie has to do with, is, in a way, the nature of celebrity and uh, the, the nature, how things get embellished over time and what we think of as our heroes and how much of that really is heroic. And uh, All right, good. So, Kelly Wan, do you take issue with that? <laughs> how does that, uh, how does this that... movie really exist, so <laughs> I give a thumb sideways till I know more. 
Actually, Dingus, this is, here's a question, a serious question. Has Kelly Wan seen Assassination of Jesse James? No. I don't see movies that give away the ending of the movie in the title. How is you not? How is it that you haven't seen that? What the? And that's, not, and that's not the ending, by the way. Just so as you know. It, Spoiler. Know. See, see. What? There's a funeral. Mm. See what I did there? Oh, you have seen it. Ah, uh, what? <laughs> I just assumed from the title, Boot Hill. Uh, there is no funeral. No. That the perfect title is just question mark, and that should be the title of every movie. Kelly, one. What like, is the? And oh, every oh, trailer should be three minutes long, but there's no picture or sound. Mm. Have you seen episode five of the Star Wars movies? No. Wait, they go to five? There's five? <laughs> what? Where are you going with that, Dingus? Or are you just had to make sure we talked about Star Wars? I mean, the Pink Panther struck back, too, but it didn't mean anything. <laughs> but we know at the end that the Pink Panther's going to do that. No, it's at the beginning. Well, no, we know he's going to get struck first, and then he's going to retaliate. Even though it's a gem and not a character in the movie. It's a diamond, I think. A pink diamond that's not shaped like a diamond. Uh, this podcast has to stop. <laughs> All right, we'll number three, please, Before Tom. we stop, let me give you a line from my number three. You ready? Yeah. I'm sorry, Father. <laughs> I'll do it again. I, I kinda Train giggled. spotting. I giggled afterwards. You're close. You're very close, Kelly Wand. I'm sorry, Father. Brave hearts. <laughs> No, that was not Scottish, Kelly Wand. Come on, oh, you need me to do it, it again? again? I was, yeah, I wasn't listening. I'm sorry, Father. <laughs> oh, the proposition. <laughs> uh, this is... Um, You're going dangerously. Apocalypto. It is a Danny Boyle movie, though. Uh, in 28 Days Later, early on, uh, the main character gets knocked out for the zombie apocalypse. He's not around. He's in a coma. And it's a, it's a very convenient sort of filmmaking device where they can just pick it up. And plus it ties into the title, lucky that, where they can just pick it up 28 days later. Uh, so Killian Murphy wakes up. He's been in a coma. Everyone's gone because there's been a zombie apocalypse kind of thing going on. So he runs into two survivors. And uh, they save him. They run from zombies. They hole up in a little shop in a subway station or something. Uh, and they explain to him, here's what happened. And Naomi Harris uh, as Serena uh, has the first little monologue about how the TVs went down and there were rumors of infection in in uh, New York and Paris and that's the last they heard and the government had no response and everything just collapsed. So that's the first example and that's just sort of a money saving device I imagine. Uh, they can just explain this this uh, collapse of society that would have been very expensive to film and then get on with this movie. But the better example of it for me is later on, Killian Murphy wants to go to, to find out definitely what happened to his parents. So they go, they find out that his parents uh, committed suicide. They euthanized themselves uh, while all this was happening. Uh, and after Killian Murphy finds this out, they realize they have to spend the night in his house and hole up there. And then we get uh, the other survivor, a fellow named Mark, has this great story about uh, how his family and he went to Paddington Station to try to escape. You know, when when the infection broke out and he, he talks about the panic and the uh, how how a mob of people had gathered there and someone is infected and how it spreads through the crowd and how he has to crawl up on top of a kiosk above the crowd. And that's this great visual image. I mean, the actor explaining it. Uh, uh, you know they don't they don't do any flashbacks or anything, and he he just paints this picture of him on top of this kiosk at Paddington Station, seeing the infection move through the crowd, 
and hit his father and his father's face. It's not an overwritten scene. It's pretty brief. But I think that's a great example of telling, don't showing. And part of what makes it work is it creates this kind of emotional connection with that character who, in mere hours, is about to be slaughtered by Naomi Harris in, in an example of you know what it what it's like in this world where if somebody gets infected you have to immediately kill that person this guy mark who's telling this this story uh gets cut in a later attack and naomi harris immediately just chops him up with a, a machete um so that's one of my favorite examples of telling not showing is uh mark's paddington station story isn't that uh wouldn't that lack the same impact if she didn't machete him right after that uh, I think really, isn't this really about the payoff? Well, that's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think it's got great payoff. Is the guy who tells the the more personal story, uh, the audience feels closer to him, and so when he gets killed, it means more. Yeah, sure. So Plus, I don't even remember I, that story. All I only remember is the guy who gets machete to death after talking for about a bunch of stuff. <laughs> well, he's there. There's a kind of a cool like expectation subversion. If you don't know the actors, like Naomi Harris, I think is pretty recognizable now, but. Uh, when you first see 28 Days Later, you think, oh, it's going to be the tough guy who lives, and she's maybe going to be the woman in distress. Uh, Danny Boyle and, and Alex and she is about the story. Yeah, she ends up being the really tough one. Uh, now, she, she she starts out tough, and then we get the army camp. She becomes a woman in distress again. It's kind of lame. Mm, like but she saves him. So what do you think of that? He saves her. Uh-uh, he gets shot. He gets shot and ha- he saves her and the other girl, Killian Murphy does. But then gets shot and she saves him, so they're even. Nah, no, well, <laughs> I don't know. You know what the lame version of that is? Like a guy talking about nothing and then getting killed is. Uh, remember Charles Dance in Alien Cubed, where she's all, "What's that ah, tattoo right. or something?" He goes, "Well, it's a long story. See, this thing happened, then some stupid shit, and blah 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 blah, and then an alien eats him." Like, well, that was my number two. Thanks. No, it wasn't. Yeah, thanks a lot. That was number two. What? I'm, I'm, I'm counting. <laughs> it was not my number two. <laughs> yeah, Alien Cube. The great speech from Alien Cube. Uh, what, did, what did I see? Uh, there's some movie that I so don't care about, enough so that I watched the trailer and saw Charles dance in. Oh, oh, uh, Ultima Underworld, where Kate Beckinsale hasn't yet learned how to throw a grenade. Uh, Charles Dance is apparently in that. You get a glimpse of him in, in the trailer. But she can throw a pin. She throws the heck out of that pin. Yeah, one of these days they're going to fix it where she figures out how a grenade works. You pull the pin, you throw the grenade, Kate. Try that next time. Did you call that Ultima Ultima Underworld? Underworld. (laughs) Oh, I did. Wow, that's a game. Uh, Just regular Underworld. How the internet? It's the. It is the Ultimate Underworld movie though, because it's the last one, right? I would say one. It's got to be penultimate. I was <laughs> underwhelmed by that preview. They're done by... I'm sure this will be the last one. They won't have any more in them. I'm so, it's just... That color scheme is monotonous. Isn't it? It's just black, white, blue. Like Matrix. Black, white, blue. <laughs> no, Matrix is green. I'm, You know, <laughs> this whole colorblind Matrix thing here is, is the stupidest thing I've heard you say since I left my coat on the floor and it's got nachos on it. With the... <laughs> That really happened, by the way. Uh, for folks listening, I got nacho cheese on my coat because Kelly Wan did not warn me about putting my coat on the floor. I'm sorry. All right, so Kelly I Wan, you that's the one theater floor in all of the United States you shouldn't put your coat on. Okay, I'm going to remember that next time we see oh, an IMAX. So Kelly Wan, to make up for it, how about giving me a fantastic number two choice for this week's three by three? Also, be wary when you lay your couch on the floor at Dingus's house in the living room. 
You lay your couch on the floor. Ultimate Underworld. <laughs> I hate myself and this. Uh, my number two, though, is... Uh, all right, I'll do a quote. All right. <clears throat> By the way, real quick, my quote is when Killian Murphy first runs into a zombified priest and has to smack him, and then he's like, I'm sorry, Father. Does he say, say that? Yeah, because he, he, he runs in... Before he runs into Selena and Mark, he runs into a church... Uh, and and there's a bunch of bodies in the church, and he and they start getting up, and he, he a priest uh, comes up to him and starts attacking him, and he whacks the priest with a, a grocery bag full of soda cans, and then apologizes to him. Uh, you go in the church. There's bodies in the church. Save it for our number. Save one. it for number one. All right, Kelly, what's your number two choice for telling, not showing? Uh, number two. <clears throat> Here's a quote. Uh, something my friends and neighbors would say. Hold on, don't tell us. <laughs> All right, so this this was on my runners-up, Kellywan. What is the actual scene from your friends and neighbors that you feel is a great example of telling, not showing? It's Jason Patrick telling uh, everyone about the best fuck he's ever had. Although, you know what? I, it does kind of what I accused you of doing, where it's kind of like the payoff's kind of good. Because then at the end, they go, come on, Ben Stiller, what's yours? And then he goes, oh, mine, it was your wife. So actually, that's kind of the... I should take this off my list. Forget my list. I don't have a number two. Just put hyphens. <laughs> so it's Jason Patrick's speech about having sex with Timmy Carter. Oh, that's his name? I believe it is, because I used to call my friend Jules Timmy Carter after seeing that. It's, it's a way of, we would call each other that as a way of denigrating one another. Yes. And he called you Nacho Sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> that was even gross, sicker in a way and, and, and dirtier. Uh, but you know what? I, I feel lame because you reminded me of that scene when we had gay sex last night. No, when you will then end tonight, like after the – never mind. That's my number two. Who cares how I got at it? <laughs> Done with it. Uh, all right. Your friends and neighbors, Jason Patrick's uh, uh, yeah. sample of best sex ever. Dingus, what do you got to follow up on that? Mm. <laughs> Take that, number two. All right, so my number two. Uh, it's gonna—it's just so awful following what you guys just did. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's, that's the worst thing. That's sad. That's just sad. All right, here's a quote from it. <clears throat> um, I feel awful bad about Jack. I can't begin to tell you how bad I feel. I knew him a long time. Jack goes boating? Uh, feel awful bad about Jack, Jack. That Robin Williams movie where he gets old, like Benjamin Butt. Feel awful bad about Jack. I don't think I've seen this movie. Oh wait, wait, from Hell. No. <laughs> I come by to say that if you're, if you want me to take his ashes up there, I'm broke back. I, like his wife said, he wanted to. Then I'm happy. Oh wait, wait, crash. <laughs> uh, what's an example, Dingus, of showing not telling? In, I mean, telling, not showing, in Brokeback Mountain. The Brokeback uh, Mountain. All right, so when, uh, in the Brokeback Mountain, when Ennis uh, goes to Jack's parents' house. Um, this oh, is, God. This is right after Jack, uh, I'm sorry, right after Ennis has talked on the phone to uh, Jack's wife, and she's told him the story of, of Jack's death. And she relates it as Jack dying because he was changing a tire and exploded in his face and killed him and he drowned in his own blood. But as she tells this, you actually see uh, the images of him being beaten. And then we're at with um, Annis at the table, at the, at, at the uh, kitchen table with um, 
with Jack's father. And um, it's just it's a short little scene. Um, but but Ennis is offering to take the ashes up there and, and Jack's father looks at him and says, you know, uh, you know, Jack used to talk about Ennis and says Ennis's full name and talks about how Jack always used to say that he was going to bring Ennis up here and have everybody meet him. They were going to fix up this ranch and make a cabin. They're going to make this farm work. And then just recently in the spring, uh, Jack said the same thing about a friend of his, a neighbor of his in Texas, who's going to leave his wife and come up here and do the same thing. Um, but you don't see any flashes to Jack doing this. You don't see any of the pictures of Jack, you know, being happy-go-lucky. You never, you don't see that that moment of Jack's lying to his parents or telling the truth to his parents or talking about Ennis in any way. The only way Ennis gets this information is through the father saying it. And it's just such a powerful moment for me when the father says Ennis's name to him. And it's clear how the father feels about this, but what it communicates to Ennis and what it says about their relationship and then how the mother reacts is just uh, what I love about this category, Tom, is that when you when you make the choice to tell, not show and you just decide to linger on a character and let us know about the character and reveal relationships uh, instead of flashing around to images and being flashy. I really like that. And this moment in Brokeback Mountain really struck me. Now you're making me want to change mine, Dingus. That's a great one. You're number one. No, but it made me think of another one. The way Dingus presented it, I, I now have a runner-up that I'll be sure to mention. So just remember that Dingus's Brokeback Mountain thing made me remember one for my runner-up. Uh, good call, Dingus. Kelly Wan, please tell me you've seen Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. Okay, good. I do God, see it is so. It is such down. a beautiful movie. I mean, I haven't watched it in years, and I just watched it early. At least I watched a few scenes, and I couldn't. I couldn't stop watching scenes from it. It's so freaking beautiful. Yeah, it really is. It's one of those movies I didn't give a shit about seeing, and then I saw it went, oh, that was great. And then when Crash won, I went, fuck the Oscars. I'm never watching them again. No, Crash never won anything that Brokeback Mountain was nominated for. That's insane, Kelly Wan. It's beat out Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves got snubbed. (laughs) And Susan Lucci. Great, Kelly. Interesting. Thank you. (laughs) Noted. Internet-ed. Kelly Wand, have you seen Lust, comma, Caution? <laughs> I saw the comma. <laughs> uh, all right, so Brokeback Mountain. Very good, Dingus. Uh, I can't believe that's not your number one. Well, yeah, because you took yeah. the same number one we all took. So, all right, well, let me do my number two now. Let me give you guys a line from it. Uh, think of a line. Uh, oh, oh, are you are you a doctor? How do you know that? Are you? Did you go to medical school? <laughs> we see that, Tom. We see that scene. We, I. What are you talking about? We we're there in the car with them, jerk. No, I'm not. No, it's not that. I'm just doing a line from the movie. Oh, okay. So in Reservoir Dogs, you don't see the bank, or it's, it's a diamond store heist. I think you don't see the heist gone bad. You just gradually then get bits and pieces of information about it afterwards. I think you find out that Michael Madsen. Uh, just went crazy and started shooting people. 
uh, Reservoir Dogs has so much leading up to the heist, and then so much of it is after the heist, but the heist itself is something they only ever talk about. And there's not like one monologue about it, I don't think. Uh, it's just something that is mentioned. Uh, and I love that for whatever reason, uh, Quentin Tarantino was like, yeah, you don't need to see any of that. We're just going to skip over this, this sort of the actual core event of the movie and just talk about, and we're just going to show you what leads up to it in the fallout afterwards. Uh, I love that about Reservoir Dogs. Well, then he also bitches you because you go, oh, he didn't show us the gunfighting. What a cheap bastard. Then he shows you an ear getting cut off. Like, oh, that's good value. <laughs> except, except he doesn't show that either. Oh, right. That's what I meant. Does he not? What do you mean he doesn't show that? Oh, uh, well, what was great about that movie, one of the things that was great was the uproar about how violent it was and the ear getting cut off. But if you watch if you watch that scene, the camera deliberately drifts off. Oh, the right, right. That's right. And you don't see it. It's this great, I'm obviously not showing you this moment. Right, right. And that's a great choice, Tom. And I didn't think about that. I was just thinking about, well, you don't see like anything about like a virgin. Maybe that. But well, you don't see you don't see when uh, when Tim Roth gets shot. I mean that that's such a huge part. Do you actually? No, you don't. No. He gets shot at the Diamond Heist. Right, uh, right. And and just what you just said about if she hadn't have done what I told her not to do. I mean, you don't see any ah, of that. Right. It's just told. Right. That's great. Yeah. That's another of the great jump cut transitions. Is it goes to Tim Roth being shot from uh, I forget the party. <laughs> Kelly Wand, it's no monkey bone. <laughs> That's not. What is your number one choice for a movie in which something is told and not shown? Uh, I'll do a quote. Can't wait. Oh, uh, hmm. This California suite looks nice. What? Wait, that's not it. Wait, that's another <laughs> list. Oh, okay. I'll do a quote. <clears throat> uh, I think I'll get some orange jaws. <laughs> Mary Ellen Moffat, she broke uh, apart. <laughs> uh, see, that's, I mean, you knew. So is that what you meant last week, Kelly Wan, is the Indiana yeah. speech in Jaws? That did not even occur to me. The until, iconic. Right, oh, until midweek, uh, that, uh, of course, the, the events of the Indianapolis sinking and the men in the water for so long, none of that's shown, of course. That's all Robert Shaw's monologue. And, yeah, that's my number one choice as well. It's also a hotly contested, like, who wrote it thing. No, it's not. <sighs> Kelly, what? You said why do you buy into all this, like, Hollywood uh, urban legend crap about Tom Cruise doing his own stunts and Robert Shaw and, and Harrison Ford improvising? I know. Also, uh, the devil possessed uh, Linda Blair for real during. Right, this. right. No, I don't. I don't think. Uh, I think that there is no. That's just an urban legend that Robert Shaw came up with this. Uh, and I also, remember. So aliens. Uh, directed Star Wars 4. Right. Everyone knows that. Uh, all right. So, Dingus, this was not your number one then? No. But hmm. it was the one that I knew Kelly Wan was thinking about. Why do so, you hate Jaws? So, Dingus obviously has one that's even better than the, the Indianapolis speech from, from Jaws. Uh, Dingus, there was another one that you said you thought we would all pick. Yeah, right. 1B. We've apparently yes. missed it, you're saying? Yes, you you guys both missed one B, and uh, I'm I'm surprised. I wow. have a, I have it's, a prediction. It's not your number one choice. You're saying, Dingus? No, no, I avoided both of these. All right. Now, why do you why why is this so great that it's shown why, that it's told and not shown? Why why don't we get to see the the dudes in the water screaming? Well, part of, I mean, Jaws doesn't do any flashbacky stuff, so in a way, it's expected. Uh, it's just a it's a matter of how good 
Robert Shaw is in that movie. Uh, it's it's all about like his delivery and the the timing of it and how the men react, how how uh, Roy Scheider and, and uh, Richard Dreyfus react to it and how it settles the how the tone changes. It's like a pall comes over the room because mm. uh, he's so good at delivering it and, and recapturing it. And the thing is, he doesn't do this like thousand yard haunted stare kind of thing. I mean, he doesn't stop being a tough gruff guy it's right. still very much quint and he's so uh like he's still so in character talking about this and he's built up this sort of armor about it and he's toughened himself um so it's still so it, it's not this typical now i'm going to tell you my deep dark haunted secret kind of scene uh i love that about it uh, i love that he tells that story and then little knowing in under 24 hours, he's going to die exactly the same way after surviving that right, right. horrifying yeah. incident. But who I just saying love the way, the way Dreyfus reacts to it. Well, the moment he says the name of the ship you're saying, Ding, it's like, what, yeah, because yeah, Dreyfus is just fucking uh, goofing around. Sorry. Uh, Dreyfus is just like goofing around and, uh, and joking about like tattoos and scars and stuff. And when he says, what's that one? Uh, and Quint knows he's probably going to know when he says it. Right. Uh, like, I love the interplay between the two men right there. I mean, so much of what makes Jaws brilliant is the interplay between those three characters. And that's a great example uh, where Brody's an outsider, he's clueless, and he's the one who has to say, well, what? what's the deal with that? And there's just this understanding and a connection in a weird way there between Hooper and Quint. Um, yeah. Wait, who wrote it? Uh, let's see, was it? Carl Gottlieb. Carl Gottlieb. No, I, I forget. There's a. I. I seem to recall. Where did I read it recently? One of the doofuses at Ain't It Cool News did a really long conversation with Steven Spielberg about Jaws maybe a year ago, and I think that's where I saw it. But I think Spielberg does address uh, that monologue uh, and the urban legend that I don't, Robert Shaw wrote it or, or whatever. Um, so it's not in the Benchley book at all. <laughs> no. Hooper's affair with Ellen Brody is. Wait, is that true? Because I don't remember the Benchley book. In the Benchley book, they don't tie it back to, like, Quint was not a World War II survivor of the Indianapolis? I don't remember. I remember, I know I read the book, but I don't remember if that was in it. Right. I read Jaws 2, the book. (laughs) (laughs) You find out everything you need to know about the scuba divers at the beginning in the fucking book. And Jaws too. It's like yeah, his wife's lawyer workstation or block, and then a shark eats them. Like, oh, you uh, just ten in pages. the in the opening in the book in the novelization of the car, you I'm find out everything you need to know about the two bicyclists who first get killed <laughs> in the car. It's the same kind of thing, Kelly Wand. <laughs> a lot of really? characters. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember like reading what? that as a kid. I don't remember the details. I just remember, oh, it's you know, it's going to introduce us to these two characters. It's the typical thing. It's the horror movie. You know, the first the first people to get killed or the first person to get killed. Like, like you hear, you learn about Chrissy in the opening of Jaws. You know, I, I remember reading Jaws and there's something about how she's swimming and at some point she's out and she's looking back at the shore and she sees the shadow of someone passing in front of the light in a window uh, and how she's reassured by seeing, by seeing that off in the distance. What? Yeah. Why? Because it's, it's lonely when it's like nighttime. Because it's scary. Water. That's like a primal fear, like being out in the middle of the ocean at night. Come on. She went out there on her own recognizance. Oh, well, she deserved what she got, wouldn't you say? Well, I thought she was trying to get laid <laughs> by the dude. <laughs> she was. I don't even know if that dude was in the book. I don't remember. I don't. You know what? I'm, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna. Speak. No one held a gun to her head and said, "Hey, go out in the water in the dark, pitch black." Something. Kelly, wanted in that scenario, have you been on that date before? 
Yeah, as this as her or the shark. I'm thinking the dude passed out on the in the surf. I'm the Ben Gardner of the uh, podcast. I Kelly, what I think of you more as the Deputy Hendrix. Ah, yeah. I uh, think of myself more as the kids karate chopping the mailbox. <laughs> Very good. I think of you more as the Polly, whose lettering is far better than uh, Deputy Hendrix. I think of you more as a what? <laughs> I think of you more as that little dog whose name I can never remember. Pippin! 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 Uh, yeah, Pippin. Yeah, poor Pippin. Steven Spielberg killed a dog. It's terrible. Biggest, what is a what is a scene in which in a movie in which something is told and not shown that's even better than Assassination of Jesse James and Brokeback Mountain? Um, hmm. And give us a line from it, if you could. All right, it's like well, if watching you Mission Impossible versus hearing a podcast about Mission Impossible. <laughs> All right, here's the line. It's hard to explain because it's not just a dream, it's a feeling. Phantasm. God, he's doing Inception, I bet. It's really? not just a dream, it's a feeling. It's not just a dream, it's a feeling. Oh, but there was that moment where there was an Inception moment in Ghost Protocol, but I can't really talk about that. Now. When when a car goes over a thing. Anyway. No, it's not Dreamscape. Inception. Dreamscape. Dreamscape. <laughs> I hate myself. This isn't ringing any bells, Dingus. I don't think I've seen it. You, you might not have. The The line that comes before it is, uh, what was the dream tonight? Nightmare on Elm Street. And then he answers, his eyes were different. He came after me with a pickaxe. What? Basic instinct. Ran it through Valentine's Day. Character the pickaxe ran it through my face. Yeah, I don't think I've seen this. Is it good? I, you know, I... I don't know if you guys would really like it, but I really, really like this movie. And it's um, it it came out in 2011. It's called Take Shelter. <laughs> Dingus. <laughs> First of all, there's no telling, not showing. Take Shelter shows everything. Yeah, they take shelter on screen. <laughs> all right. Um, I what am I? Yeah, I can't think of what scene you have in mind, so I'm curious to hear. So, wow, meeting. So when we when we did this this uh, movie on the podcast, one of the things that Tom was talking about is is how he imagined um, the moment at the Academy Awards when Michael Shannon is uh, has been nominated for Best Actor, mm-hmm. and uh, and so we, the the scene Tom's going to choose for his clip is is a scene where at at the banquet, you mm-hmm. know, at the fried food banquet, VFW. The scene, yeah, the scene I'm going to choose is this scene, and it's the scene after the paramedics have been called, and and Michael Shannon is sitting there across from his wife, uh, who's played by Jessica Chastain, Samantha, and so Michael Shannon's Curtis, this is the first time he's talking to her about his dreams, and throughout the film, we have been inside his dreams, and and the film is playing with what what's real and what's not, so I'm not going to go too much too deep into this, but but in this moment... For the first time, we are not in a dream and we are not privy to the images of the dream. Michael Shannon tells us about it, or Curtis tells us as he's telling her. So we're sort of where she is. Uh, we're on the outside, and, and this is the first time, first time it's revealed. And the way Curtis talks about this dream that he has, where DeWart comes after him, his best friend comes after him, we don't see this. And we've seen these images, we've been a part of them, and they're so powerful in this movie. And so instead, in this particular scene, we're told the dream, because the dream has to be told to his wife. And I, I am just crazy about that there's no flashes there's no like you know he starts it by talking about a storm we don't see like 
oh, a quick flash to a storm image or a quick flash to DeWart's face or any of that. It's just Michael Shannon talking through what he just experienced and the fact that he's let his wife in on it for the first time and we're along with her. Uh, I was so struck watching this movie that this is that moment in, in a movie. And when Tom talked about this, this is one of the first things I thought about was this director made a choice. Um, I'm not going to show you this particular one. I'm going to have the character tell you about it instead. So what, why do you, I mean, you think there's something specific to that, that dream or that moment though, where the director, uh, Jeff Nichols decided to not show any of the dream. Cause he's not shy about showing the dreams in other parts of the movie. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's, go ahead. Sorry. Well, he's, it, it, it deals with, um, him having to finally let his wife in and what is going to end up being a betrayal of a friend. And we don't, we're not privy to that. And I, and for me, that was just one of the most powerful moments of the movie. And if you watch it again, if you watch just the way he does that scene, for me, it's, it's, it's so much more meaningful for me. And I, I totally understand why um, people like the pyrotechnics of the other scene. Uh, but for me, watching an actor just sit there in quiet and relate this moment that is just agonizing for him. Um, I, I just, I'm crazy about that moment where he does that. You know, Dingus, I think I speak for Kelly Wand as well when I say I would love to watch it again, but I am not a member of the SAG nominating committee who has these movies sent to my house so I can watch it whenever I want. Uh, I'm I'm glad to finally get Take Shelter on a list, though. It belongs on pretty much, uh, I would say, 90% of our 3x3s. Yeah. Uh, All right, so uh, better than uh, Assassination of Jesse James, better than Brokeback Mountain, the uh, dream sequence, or the non-dream sequence you don't see in Take Shelter. Uh, And you know what? I... uh, Look forward to getting to see it again, and at that point, I'll get back to you, Dingus, on whether or not I accept your number one. All right. <laughs> uh, my that number one short, though. is, of course, Jaws. Well, one's short. I'm describing the pickaxe dream. It's like Tom Cruise going, well, I drove over to Budapest. It's like him saying that. <laughs> <laughs> so you may as well just pick that. Uh, I don't see the connection, but okay, I'll go with that. <laughs> I think uh, I won this argument. <laughs> Uh, so then, Dingus, what is the number, What other than Jaws, what did you think is the other one that we were going to bring up that Kelly and I obviously forgot about? Wait, can I guess? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Pulp Fiction, The Watch, Christopher Walken. Yep. See? I win. But I that's win. not an event. Uh, what? What do you mean? That's him kind of describing the background of an object, I guess. I, you know, I, well, I, he's, I, you know, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Wipe the nachos out of your ears and... Uh... <laughs> So the one I thought of is, and I'm going to, I don't, is Cameron Mannheim the actress's name? Um, is there an actress named Cameron Mannheim? Is Cameron something? Yeah, Do you guys know? She was in, she's a TV actress mainly. Then. Okay, right. So she describes chopping up a uh, uh, somebody coming on to her and then chopping up that person and putting his body in the freezer to Philip Seymour Hoffman in the movie Happiness. Yeah, you're right. That's her. Yeah, and I love that scene, and it made me think of Dingus talking about Brokeback Mountain and the interplay between uh, uh, Heath Ledger and the actor playing the father. Uh, I love that scene for how it's an example of when you have two actors doing a scene together, 
it's not a matter of just one of them talking and the other one hanging fire until it's time for his line. Uh, you know, listening, the act of listening in a scene is such a crucial part of how performers work together. And watching Philip Seymour Hoffman listening to Cameron Mannheim's monologue about, <laughs> about chopping some guy up and hiding his body in the freezer, he's so good in that scene and he's so aware and he's so present. And happiness is very early Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, but I just remember that, that sequence there and their little, their little uh, duo, you know, she's basically got a monologue, but but he's a big part of it, and she's describing something that we, of course, don't see. Uh, hey, Tom, sir, what are you wearing? <laughs> Is it wet? Is it me? <laughs> God, can't believe you made me say that on a podcast in front of people. Dingus, don't in be gross. Kelly, Wan, please, please tell me you've seen Happiness by yeah. Tom Solens. Okay, good. Kelly, Wan, give me a line from Happiness. Uh. Is it me? Oh, wait. No, no, I got one. Did you guys catch Leno last night? <laughs> Did someone say that in happiness? Yeah, the the wife of uh, the guy, the child molester. Spoiler uh, alert. Oh, what is that? Dylan? Oh, what's that actor's name? Dad Gummit. He was the lizard almost in Spider-Man. I know. Please don't. Oh, I can't believe I can't think of his name. That guy's fantastic. Dylan? Isn't it Dylan? Ah, McDermott? No. No, no. God, now okay. you've said Dylan, you've banished all names from <sighs> Dylan. At any rate, yeah, that's, that, that is a good one, Kelly Wand. So that reminds me of my uh, a line from uh, Repo Man, where you just hear someone saying a line from a joke, and the line is, <laughs> and so the farmer says, how come that pig's got a wooden leg? <laughs> that's all you hear. It's an example <laughs> of, here's a line from a joke. If you just need background dialogue, have somebody say this. <laughs> what joke's that? Uh, you know, over the years, I have wondered that, and I think the joke is about where the punchline is, well, you wouldn't eat a whole pig who could talk, or something like that. I saw uh, the joke. Ah, uh, I get See? it. See? <laughs> well played, sir. There's also a moment in Repo Man where in the background, this is a hospital scene, uh, a nurse is, she has a clipboard with paperwork, and there's a patient who's just handing her the clipboard, and she looks at it, and she goes, all wrong, do it again, and she slams the clipboard down in his lap. Uh, it's just things, you know what, if you look at Repo Man, lots of stuff going on in the background you can enjoy, just so you know. Kelly, one the guy's song in Repo Man, he's on stage, and I think his lyrics are, shooby doo wop say what, yeah. That is the Circle Jerks, Kelly Wand. Oh. That is, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's an actual punk band, uh, I'm not a total babe in the woods when it comes to musical acts, Tom. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's do a three by th oh runners up by the They're way. The Any other runners up of telling not showing? Oh, uh, the Ben Johnson thing from Last Picture Show, but I couldn't remember it well enough to put on my list. So I have not seen that particular western. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> that is true, though. I have not seen Last Picture Show. I was I thinking of uh, Samuel Jackson's thing in Deep Blue Sea, but he doesn't really say anything happened well just because he doesn't get to finish his monologue doesn't mean it's he, he actually does say like it did they were yeah it's the thing like if you think water is fast try ice like it's a bunch of survivors on a mountain or something oh isn't it so you get a little picture of it but okay I'll, okay then that's my runner-up he says he's talking about mountains before he does <laughs> isn't it like isn't the whole thing about you think water is fast you should try ice like that's what's his, that mean that doesn't make well, they're, they're worried about the the thing is going to flood, I believe, and yeah. drown them, and and they're bickering, and so as he's giving the speech where they all pull together by telling him about how he got trapped on a snowy mountain. Aren't I right about that, Dingus? Do you know? Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. He, he's telling this stirring story about when he was trapped, and, and, and then he says, and we're not going to fight anymore. The first thing we're going to do is... What's the first thing they're going to do, Dingus? <laughs> let's let's go around the table. What do you think the first thing they were going to do was going Feed to eat the shark so they're not as hungry? Ah, good. I think he was going to hand out a life jacket to everyone but refuse to take one himself. Oh, like the guy in Sanctum and Abyss. Yeah. See, that's a Jaws reference that you didn't get, Kelly Wan. I'm very disappointed in you. Because that's, that's how Quint uh, ends the Indianapolis speech. And that's why I'll never put on a life jacket again. That's the punchline. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and how come that pig's got a wooden leg? Or, uh, and that's why I'll never put on a life jacket again. Uh, Dingus, what do you think the first thing that they were going to do in Deep Blue Sea would have been if Samuel Jackson had been in charge? The aristocrats. <laughs> <laughs> they were going to barricade, barricade the walls. That's what they're going to do. Of the ship? Of the orca? <laughs> of the <laughs> cave. They're going to... The cave and uh, Jaws. They're going to read. The, they're going to. They're going to uh, play Beethoven for the Jaws. <laughs> All right, I do have one runner-up. Um, mm-hmm. It's when uh, Deckard is telling Rachel her memory. Mm. Which movie? That is a good one. Oh, and uh, what? The spider, the baby spiders. Yeah. Right. And Blade Runner. Yeah. And so, and it's sort of a call and response. And you don't ever, you don't see any of those images. It's just him talking about a memory that isn't really. Kelly, I want to have a very important question for you. In Blade Runner, is Deckard a replicant? Yes or no? No, but the unicorn is. <laughs> okay, okay what uh, uh-huh. Jeremy Renner's speech about Tom Cruise's wife and gross protocol? Gross protocol. Gross <laughs> protocol. God. It's hard to talk for so long. Well, before we lose, before you lose the ability of speech, Kelly Wan, tell us what next week's three by three will be. Oh, I'm very excited. I hear it's a good one. Yeah, we heard that from me, so you now you be the judge. All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, three best over-the-counter fictitious movie products, like uh, Quietus. I'll take some off the table by example in uh, Children of Men. That like thing you could get helps you. Uh, Kill yourself by no, don't, don't say. I think we know what it is. You don't. Why are you wanting to take things off the table? Well, I want it because you guys sounded stupefied and mute. But I'll I'll give an example. Because you just keep talking and we haven't said anything. So it's like every podcast. <laughs> it's like two hours every week. Uh, but like, say, flubber wouldn't count because you can't buy it over the counter. Flubber is a controlled substance. Yeah, I was not aware. You of have that. to have a prescription for flubber. I did not know that. All right. Because if, if, if everyone in the NBA had it, it would fuck up the game. So instead, just one dude has it. So, Kelly Wan, I know that you sometimes play the video games. Uh, in a game like, like Saints Row or Grand Theft Auto, they have, like, fake products. So you're wanting that kind of stuff, like, like Freckle Bitches is the equivalent of Wendy's in Saints Row. You're wanting that kind of stuff, but in movies. Or Sugar Pops in uh, Fallout 3. Sugar pops is a real thing. Okay, uh, iguana on a stick. Okay, what about cheesy Sugar pops? Poofs? Aren't real. Cheesy poofs. Cheesy poofs. From, uh, from Duke Nukem. Sugar pops are now called honey pops if they're still around, and they had a weird kind of like oval-faced bear mascot. I definitely remember a cereal called Sugar Pops, and they were I think like like popped rice or something with sugar on them. Does that not ring any bells for you, Kelly? One sugar pops. Come on. You could make one of the drugs using them, but then the drugs over the counter too, because you are getting it over a counter, a video game counter. 
Um, mm, good point. Like Radaway. Great, Kelly. Yeah, Radaway. Right. Be, see if that was in a movie. What's a so, Radaway? Oh, about a couple. <laughs> Very good. Finally. Uh, let's then do that next week when we see. Wait, was that all right? Well, you know what? We're going to find out, aren't we? Oh, you're not going to tell me. Right. We're going to find good. out. It's, it's kind of the, um, the opposite of another category you've had. That's fine. Oh, something. It's an under the counter real movie product. But these are fake ones. All right, so we'll see what we can come up with for, for that next week. Uh, and let's let's see if any of them are in Tintin. What do you think uh, of that? Oh, we're seeing Hugo? Uh, you can see Hugo. No one is stopping you. But before you come to next week's podcast, if you're listening to this podcast, we invite you to see, we invite you to see Tintin, which we will be doing, and we will be discussing it. At least one of us remembers the comic book. So there may or may not be, like, source material comparison stuff. Who's that fucking old? I know. Can you believe it? Uh, also, uh, I've never done this before. We've been going for a couple of years now, so I just wanted to ask if you had made it this far through the podcast, if you've listened to us this entire time, please, please rate us on iTunes. Uh, we would appreciate it if uh, you would just – you don't have to rate us highly necessarily. Uh, you can be brutally honest if you like. Uh, but just go to iTunes if you get a chance and, and click a little rating for us or write us a little review. It, it helps us reach other folks. Uh, so please do that if you uh, have, if you are a loyal listener. If you hate us, you don't have to do that. We don't mind. You can skip. No, that. go ahead and give us the one star. That's fine. I'm we can take it. But explain why, so we can improve and at least get to three stars. Exactly. Uh, so uh, join us next week for Tintin and fake over-the-counter movie products. Next week, I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian Mulan Mulanski. Uh, it's Christian Murawski. Um, I don't think so. Uh, and also, Kelly Wand. 28 seconds earlier. You can sell me alarm, you can call out your cards, you can fence in your yard, you can pull out the cards, but I won't take down. Oh no, I won't take down. Oh no. Cadillacs are bills, cook the bills, bring dead friends, yeah, stupid whales, girl, I'm too for real. Tom, you're so edgy. This music was in the trailer, by the way. Of what? So it, of Mission Impossible 4. It's uh, relevant. <laughs> it just screams white guys in their 40s talking about movies on the internet. Uh, Paula Patton's premium pomegranates. Paula Patton's premium pomegranates. Paula Patton's premium pomegranates. Paula Patton's premium pomegranates.